0: live uh with the deadly analysis podcast um, hello Gordon I mean hello listeners I don't what how did that happen that was weird uh, welcome to our analysis and discussion of the 2001 psychological horror film session 9 uh, I'm here tonight with Garrett uh, Jonah and Jim and I think this film was Garrett's pick. Uh, I have notoriously given Garrett grief in the past for selecting this film and for some odd reason whenever i do he just looks at me and goes fuck you like that i don't know what that's about it's really odd i don't know why he chooses to talk to me that way weird um so before we hop into the movie before we begin there's a couple things i want to get out of the way um first we're going to be discussing um spoilers so uh if you haven't seen this film watch at your own risk we discuss spoilers in every film that we analyze and talk about uh secondly as a reminder to our new listeners we approach horror films in much the same way we would like a good whiskey. We talk about our enjoyment of it, our enjoyment of the film, and then our appreciation of the film. So we distinguish between those two things. It's like when you drink a whiskey, you can enjoy it by drinking it however you want, ice, no ice, mix it with Coke, blasphemy in my book, but whatever, you enjoy it, drink it however you want. Um, And then you appreciate it, which has an an aura of a, a kind of objective appreciation. You may use a nosing glass, jot down particular tasting notes. So there's kind of a subjective component of the thing and then kind of in a, an objective appreciation of the thing, things like film style or the writing or the score, etc. So that's how we kind of approach horror films here. So session nine, session nine presents us with uh, an asbestos abatement crew that has won the bid for an abandoned insane asylum. What could go wrong, right? That's how every beautiful thing starts in your life. Um, so we're introduced to the characters, Gordon, Phil, Jeff, hank and mike who have won the bid and for the most part these guys are all buddies most of them have worked together quite a bit in the past and what should be a straightforward if rather rushed rushed job is complicated by the personal histories of the crew in particular uh, hank is dating phil's old girlfriend that's not good gordon's new baby seems to be unnerving him more and more than should be expected and so things just get more complicated Um, As the would-be lawyer, Mike, finds and plays these tapes from a former patient that has multiple personalities. Her name is Mary Hobbs, um, and this all happens while, you know, Mike is exploring the asylum. So one of those personalities of Mary Hobbs, as we find in these tapes, um, is the mysterious Simon, who doesn't actually appear as a voice until the ninth session of the recorded tapes. Um, and I suspect Simon will be a major, maybe not major, a, ma- maybe not a major point of contention, but certainly a major th- thing that we'll discuss in this uh, analysis, because I think how we approach Simon, like the metaphysical reality, let's say of Simon, will frame to a large extent what this movie is all about to each of us, right? Is it is it a film that's purely about the mental unraveling of a person that's snapped under pressure you know, or is there maybe really like this being, this entity that has the power to influence the weak and the wounded, so to speak, right? And you know, we had a similar discussion about this in our Babadook podcast, where we debated for like an hour. You know, if the monster in the movie was an actual thing, um, if it actually exists within the narrative. Um, so, uh, my thirty-second spiel, my initial thoughts of the film. Um, I've seen it three times now, uh, and each time it's actually grown on me. Um, when I first saw it, I, I couldn't stand it. I told Garrett this, and I'm notorious for talking shit about this film in other sessions of the podcast. I thought it was slow. There was um, very little payoff for me. I thought it was a little campy at times. And then in the last week, I watched it two more times. So it's been eight years since I've seen it, and I watched it twice this week just to, to feel it out a little more. Um, and, you know, each time it grew on me, it's one of the few films that um, really has gotten better each time I watched it. I mean, I think it's definitely a flawed film, but it has a lot of things that scare me in it, like in a, in a good, hor- it has stuff in a horror film that scare me. So for example, an isolated setting, um, a, a very slow burn of tension This maybe one of the slower burns in some of the horror films that I've seen An unraveling of the mind ambiguity of the monster, depending on how we look at Simon. Those are all things that like, I dig in a horror movie. They keep me interested. They keep me there. Um, so I got that more the second and third time I watched the film. Um, so I guess <laughs> this is where I eat crow. I sort of owe Garrett an apology for giving him so much shit about this movie initially. I, I think I just didn't get it the first time I watched it. I think I, I may have just checked out at a certain point because it was so slow, which is a huge sin. I've realized <laughs> in some of these um, in some of these films. So I, I enjoyed it quite a bit more uh, the last couple times I saw it. Um, so um, you know. Uh, the um the, the stuff that did it for me really is the interaction between all of the characters, I think this time around. there's you know, there's no monster jumping out from behind a corner. there's no ghost chasing guys throughout the asylum. And I think the key to unlocking why this film is so scary to people is just to look no further than Gordo, uh, Gordon. you know um, the the Mary Hobbs session tapes I think are to a large extent in this film an analog for Gordo and his own disassociation from reality after killing his wife and kid. Um, So let's, we can, I guess we'll, we'll get into all of that, but that's sort of like my maybe minute long spiel about the film. I enjoyed the pace of the film, the setting. I mean, actually the setting absolutely made this movie in my opinion. I think if they would have filmed this anywhere else, um, I I don't think we'd even be talking about, uh, about the film. So uh, I enjoyed the mystery. There's a a large element of mystery to the Mary Hobbs tapes movies, very investigative. There's a whodunit sort of vibe that counters, maybe some of the longer sequences of dialogue um, that are hard to take, I think for some people. So my two cents about the film, Uh, enough about me. Uh, This was Garrett's pick. So I'm going to hand this over to Garrett and um, Garrett, why don't you just tell us why you selected this film to discuss tonight?
1: Yeah. uh, A lot to agree with about what you said. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a perfect film. There's definitely some shortcomings, Um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, it, it is a film that I absolutely love. Um, I first saw this film when I was in grad school. Um, I actually didn't have any idea what it was going to be about. I knew it was a horror movie, but that was about it. I put it in late one night. I was planning on watching maybe a half hour of it and then maybe going to bed. And it just caught me and grabbed me. And not only did I finish watching the whole movie, after I finished it, I think this is the only time in my life I've done this. I got to the end and I rewatched the whole thing with the director's commentary right away because I just I had to to get deeper into it. and uh, it's been a favorite ever since. Um, and it's also, I think, really underappreciated. It's part of the reason why I put it on the list, because I wanted to draw it to a larger uh, audience than it, than it has, because it's really, really good movie. Um, so what do I think is so good about it? Well, uh, again, repeating some of the stuff that you said, Noah, I, the, the setting is fantastic. There's, there's a small number of films, in my opinion, where the, the location is a character unto itself, Uh, And this is one of those movies. Uh, In this respect, I would compare it. I realize this is high praise, but actually would compare it to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, uh, just in terms of how the location sort of presents itself to you and how it's, you know, it it sort of just envelops you and surrounds you. Um, uh, And it is an isolated setting again. Um, So so that's something I think is incredibly powerful about the film. Overall, I think it's well acted. Obviously, that David Crusoe bit, which you've referenced a couple of times, the fuck you, was a serious mistake uh, on the director's part, editor's part, actor's part. I guess a lot of blame to go around for there. It's been sort of memed and uh, possibly for, for, for good reasons. So there's there's that moment and there's a couple other moments, I think, yeah where, where, where the film missteps. Uh, but overall, I think the acting is solid. I love the pace. I love the soundtrack. I love sort of the techniques and the devices, even though some of them have been done before. I think that the the, like the the recordings, for example, uh, uh, you know, sort of this old scratchy recordings giving us a window into the past. This film didn't certainly didn't pioneer that technique, but I think it executed it very, very well. Um, And then of course, sort of the the final reveal. I mean, you know, I, I know that like you know, plot twists kind of get a lot of shit. But personally, if a plot twist uh, can beat me, I love it you know if, if i don 't see it coming um, and, and I should have seen it coming, then I feel that the the, the 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 film has has sort of won a contest and I love that create contest of creative intellects and this is one again i don 't know if you guys were able to see the final twist coming, but i wasn 't you know again I, w- I was paying very close attention, I was deeply engaged and the and the, and the final reveal totally got me. I was not uh, uh, prepared for it at all um, and and that just absolutely thrilled me so uh, yeah, all things considered, just you put it together at the emotional tone and the cinematography, Joan, I think that's something you said that you, you, you liked a lot. Um, I think this is, this is an exceptionally well made psychological horror film uh, and definitely a, a, a towards the top of my list. Uh, now, a few years back, I, I, I made Jim sit down and watch this film with me. And Jim, of course, is, a, is notoriously very, very nitpicky and critical about movies because it's well, it's kind of his thing. So I, I would have hand- never
0: guessed. I would have never guessed.
1: <laughs> so I want to hand things off to Jim now so he can give me his unvarnished opinion, because I think after we saw it, he was kind of trying to be polite to my feelings uh, uh, afterwards. And, and, and now he has no excuse to do that. So he can sort of tear into it and, 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 and say his honest thoughts now.
2: oh that's funny um because i was gonna take it easy since not only are you still here but you're also like we're in front of other people so like any any license that i have to be rude to you um i would be far more rude to you in, in uh in private than uh than here in public no um so i i I watched the film a few years ago with Garrett and I absolutely did not like it. I thought it was all the things that you said, Noah, in your your beginning, um, that it was a slow burn and perhaps too slow, Um, but more than that, I thought that the characters were flat. I didn't think that there was much personality to each of these people and the conflicts between each of them seem incredibly surface. Um, What is more, I think that Garrett and I we, our our movie taste is relatively similar. The The Venn diagram of our movie taste is pretty, uh, it's almost a circle. Um, but uh, there's one area, I think, where things wor- that work on you don't work on me. And I think the, the biggest thing is that environment works on you. Atmosphere works on you. Things uh, of that sort work on you. And that doesn't work on me. Um, this is a, uh, I'm, I'm about to uh, piss off almost everybody watching and listening, but uh, I've always said that if you replace the soundtrack on John Carpenter's Halloween, it's just a real estate video about suburbia. Um, and there's a similar type of criticism that goes to session nine. If we replace- suddenly
0: got 10 dislikes in one second. I hope you know that. That's, yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I'm checking that and uh, seeing that none of them. But anyway, uh, yes, that's. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if if uh, if, if I get hate tweeted for that one. Um, but no, it, it, you know, and the same thing. It, the same thing is true here. I think that if you replace the soundtrack, which Garrett, you said you liked, I said it. it well, I haven't said anything about the soundtrack yet, uh, but I'm about to. Um, it didn't work for me. It doesn't if you replace that soundtrack with anything else, it's just random shots of of a a legitimately creepy place, but not I, I, I think you need more of a story here. I think you need more uh depth to the characters. And you compared it to the shining, um the I, I think the people uh the 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 crazy shit that goes on in the Overlook Hotel has just as much to do with the creepiness of the Overlook Hotel than, uh, than the, the hotel itself. Um, you know, you've got like Blowjob Bear running around The Shining, and here you have like a chair um, that's really coolly lit, but it's a chair. Um, it's an evocative image, but it's a chair uh, compare that to blowjob bear and and i think you see where i'm where i'm coming from um so uh, that's that's i've said a lot i'll let all of you i saw noah at one point as i was saying things you went I've actually, oh, wow. just
0: I've actually just sent you a mail bomb as you were talking. Like it's on its way, be looking for it. I guess that defeats the purpose of a mail bomb, but, uh, <laughs> like, like, oh my God, like the, the, the sound is one of the things that for me, the music is one of the things that for me through and through all of my viewings, I thought kept me into it. So like the, so, the single piano key you ever, like there's certain horror movies that has a really light piano key, even a single piano key, even if it, that has to be done well, right like I feel like if you do that at the wrong time or it, like it, it's it's like salt when you put it on food it has to be has to be you know put on certain things in light amounts and peppered and you know you can't just you can't just throw this sort of ambient dark ambient actually music that was in this film you can't i, I guess I should say you can't take it away like i, I I'd be hard pressed to think Jim what i would we, we would what we would replace the ambient sort of atmosphere in this film with that would make it equal. Like, can you give me an example? Like what I, I maybe no music would have been. Uh, for me, the only thing I can think of is there's certain horror films that don't have music. Maybe that would have done it, given the isolation in this movie, given given the setting of this movie. Um, but to me it made me eerie it just felt eerie it made me creeped out rather the eerie the eerie music and the sounds it sort of added to everything like overtly added to it so like what would you replace it with that you think would be up to par
2: that's not know. my argument i, oh. I mean go, uh, uh, uh that's not my 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 argument isn't let's replace the music with like clown car music or anything yeah, like yeah, that. yeah that's yeah. not that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is there's uh there's a, a, a If you're basing the entire um, length and breadth of your suspense on the music and on the setting, then you don't have much. What I want is deeper characters, deeper character conflict, and a little bit more to that interpersonal drama. My point about the music isn't that I want to replace it with something. It's that if I take that out of the experience, then uh, then I'm left with less.
3: All right, can I? I'd like to say something in alien in science fiction movies. Bear with me; I'm going somewhere with this. It's hard to notice, but if you, there's always a hum of the engine, and there's a cut of Alien where you can hear the dialogue without the hum of the engine. Now you can't hear the the hum really, but you can definitely notice it's not there, and that hum totally adds to the depth and 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 the eeriness of the environment. So I think that if you were gonna going to have any music at all just have the sounds of the institution they're in that's scary enough the the echo the, the the sound of in um well it
0: amplifies it right it amplifies whatever the setting is that you're in I think to a large extent I, th- I feel like that would have worked in this
3: there's there just there I'm going to just I mean there's two things I want to say one is that there's a documentary. Um, called Exporting Raymond, where they have to bring everybody who loves Raymond to Russia. And so there's a scene where Philip Rosenthal is in the basement of this Russian building, and he goes, Shh, if you listen carefully, you can hear the cancer, because, like, because it was such an old, decrepit building. So there's a Facebook meme that we've all seen that says, if you were asked to spend the night in this haunted house for a million dollars, would you do it? And here's what I'm afraid of. One that the house isn't actually empty, bats, rabies, black widow spiders, black mold, asbestos, anything you'd find in an abandoned building and the dark, not ghosts, you know, cause the whole film goes into the fear of the dark. It's the environment, there again is the environment, but the sounds of the environment are far more terrifying for the creepy crawly things, the sound of paint cracking, the sound of wind coming through the vents. The sound of water gurgling in tubs and baths, and then just dust settling on the floor—all that is far more horrifying than any music you could add to it. Even the most minimalistic, just piercing one note, occasionally just one. We you know just one piano key. So, do you
0: th- do you think that that would have made this film better, or did did you did you enjoy the the music in this? Did you think it helped? I felt it was subtle. It was ambient, but it was subtle. It wasn't like It Follows, for example, in
3: which it, or, or Halloween or something, in which the music is very overt. Do you know what I mean? The movie is so self-referential with people sitting around explaining the plot to each other that I feel like the music is there to tell you it's a horror movie. The music didn't make it worse, but it didn't add any depth to it. It just was like, you're scared now. It was like kind of like a Pavlovian response. Okay, that's chilling. You feel that chill? Cool. No? Oh, then wait, and maybe you'll feel it next time. That's it. So That's it felt it. like it was a trigger. It's interesting
1: or... that, that uh, you know, we seem to be divided into two two, and two uh, on on the music here. Um, I got to say, you know, I think you're, the basis of your complaint seems to me to be very, very strange. Um, to say that, yeah, if you take away the music, then it just doesn't work is kind of like saying to me, well, if you just took away all the good acting, then that drama just disappears, you know? Take away that wonderful cinematography and the emotional uh, uh, power just doesn't wash over you. Like, well, yeah, but that's how films work. It's one of the sort, of, the soundtrack is one of the central elements well, of a film.
3: Well, the, the soundtracks, undoubtedly, I would be the first to admit the soundtrack can make a film. It, it sometimes improves the film to such a degree that the soundtrack becomes a char- the best character in the film. This was not one of those films for me. The music didn't really work for me in this film, but there's plenty, there's plenty of horror movies where the music is absolutely like devastatingly chilling or scary. It, it's, it does have an impact on me. Now bear in mind, and this could entirely be due to the fact that I had to watch this movie on a horrible rip that distorted every all the entire audio of the film so i'm going to say i probably don't know what the hell you guys are talking about because <laughs> i heard a different note than everybody else You did. heard like
0: but, the chipmunk uh version of the music
3: too actually Yeah probably maybe it was like in a different key a different note so I probably saw a different movie. Because we both saw session nine, but we saw completely different films.
0: Yeah, you were on a whole new level. You were on session 10 or some shit. Yeah, that was go go, go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. I'll let you respond to Garrett.
2: Yeah, once again, I'm not arguing against non-diegetic music. I'm not arguing against non-diegetic movie music in this uh, in this in this film. What I'm arguing is that Uh, when I analyze this film, it's relying upon music and environment more than it's relying upon character interaction. And for me, I need character interaction. I need blowjob bear, naked woman in the bathtub, uh, blood flowing at the, you know, crazy, two crazy twin girls. Like if you're comparing this to The Shining, those are the things that, uh, and Lloyd, the the shitty bartender, uh, racist bartender. Um, those are the things that really make the Overlook Hotel fucking creepy. Not just the the music that uh, that accompanies it in The Shining. So I, once again, not arguing that we should take the music out. I, ju- I'm just saying that once I once I'm analyzing the constituent parts of this film, and. I take away the effect that the music and the environment has on me and only focus on the effect that the character interactions have on me, then I am left with a uh, a more shallow experience. Well, not a shallow, I, 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 I'm left seeing this as a more shallow film and it's not as compelling an experience for me as it is for, for those who the film's defenders. It,
0: it's uh, it sounds it sounds like the indictment isn't so much like when it's cashed out with you. It sounds like the indictment isn't so much the music was too heavy. It's that maybe the dialogue sequences and the character development were so poor that they overburdened um, these other elements that you sort of need everything to be in an equalization on right. Like right, I, I, which which is which is crazy to me only in the in, in the sense that this that was my criticism of the film is that it was too. Uh, too heavily relied on, like it was too heavily relied on dialogue and characters and interaction. And I thought there was, I thought there was complexity between the characters. You know, these blue collar workers are coming in. There's clearly characters that have a past, an ongoing feud. Um, there's one that clearly is unbelievably stressed, and I felt like the dance in their conversations was done well. It wasn't done to, to me. It was done well. It wasn't done poorly. It it made the movie, but it wasn't. Like I I actually felt it was the complete opposite of what you felt. I felt it was so strong that when I initially watched it in my first viewing, I saw it as a kind of criticism that it was too dialogue-heavy, there was too many characters. That was one of my first um, criticisms of the film, is that there's too much going on between these characters. But as I watched it a second and third time, I I sort of felt the dance a bit more between the characters. I think the acting made it particularly... informative it was it the acting in this movie is fantastic i I think we'd all agree on that except for the fuck you which isn't really david caruso's fault let's be honest here um it also allowed me to have tons of memes for social media when advertising this podcast i just want to say tons of gifts of it um but uh yeah so for me it, it, it was so it was so overtly the opposite of what you're saying jim that i i saw it as a criticism so in other words i saw it as like an opposite criticism of you so that's really interesting that you um found Found it to be um, the way it is, so that it impacted sort of the level that the music had for you, like the way uh, everything danced with you. It seemed like one thing was much heavier than the other. Um, I just didn't feel that way. Really interesting.
1: So let's let's use that to shift gears from the music sure. to talk about the character relationships, because I I I think the character relationships are pretty compelling. Um, like there's you know the one scene where uh, uh, you know, David Crusoe's character Phil um, and and uh, Gordo Peter Mullins Gordo are sitting and they're talking. Um, and, and Gordo asks Phil, what's the, the, the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. Right. And then he starts talking about, you know, his, his relationships. And then Gordo drops this bomb, like where he says he confesses that he hit his wife. And it's, I mean, it's this incredibly shocking moment of incredible vulnerability and fear. He's like, I love my wife, but I hit my wife. And you see him on the edge and trying to open up to his friend and his friend does not know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to respond to that. He you know, he's, he's sort of drawn in. And I found that to be a very, very compelling scene. And, and the relationship, you know, between those two characters and, and other other parts of the film too. I mean, you can, you can sort of see the tension uh, uh, in so many ways ratchet up between them over the course of the film. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. And then um, Josh Lucas's character, Hank, I thought was wonderful. You know, he has, he's a sort of like laid back asshole that everyone knows, everyone, everyone works with someone like this and he's kind of likable, but he's also kind of a dick. Um, and he sort of, you know, brings you know a sort of levity to, you know, not necessarily comic relief, but you know, sort of at least a certain sort of uh, uh, something that pushes up from sort of the stress. And then you know what ends up happening with his character ends up being sort of this incredibly sort of crushing, haunting destruction. You know, because he ends up being lobotomized. Uh, um, and it's uh, yeah, I thought I thought there was I thought there were some pretty compelling character relationships and character arcs there.
3: I'd like to come back to the environment if we haven't moved too far away from that. Go for it. So I'm going to say something kind of not nice. And then I'm going to say something very nice. Institutional horrors of films that take place in mental institutions For the most part, are always dead giveaways that the lead character or one of the lead characters is insane. You basically know how the movie is going to end based on the fact that it takes place in a mental institution. Um, That's just that's not always the case, but quite often it is enough that it's kind of kind of become a trope. But the nice thing is that there are many reasons for a film to take place in mental hospital but asbestos abatement is very interesting and unique because asbestos is a natural evil it's natural evil that that can cause that, that poses actual danger and harm and it puts us into that into the realm of reality out of the supernatural or even the historical and it's a reality that we believe because that they have to protect themselves from if that makes sense and it's a permanent danger because as long as it's there there's the de- there's the the realization that asbestos can can cause you harm and so that's something that connects to the historical context of of the film so asbestos in a way becomes a background character to the film and it, and it gives them actual re- reason and cause to fear and be there it's not they're not a cleaning crew they're not filming a movie there They're not just trespassing, and they're being chased by scary sounds and rats. I mean, the asbestos, in a way, is kind of the second villain, but it's one that never comes into a—doesn't manifest
0: in the same way. That's really interesting. I I never thought of it that way. I feel like maybe if this—with that in mind, I feel like if this movie was shot in 2018, like— if it was like a Blumhouse picture, there'd be like an asbestos monster or like ghost or something, like dumbed down, like 2018 version of this film, there'd be like an asbestos ghost going after people, like breathing on them, like, (gasps) ah,
3: shit. Well, what's funny now is that, not it's not funny, actually, is that asbestos is now going to become, is now a fear again in 2018. Now we're going to have asbestos abatement after the Trump administration, not to get political. I'm just saying that asbestos is now in the political discussion. And so it it somehow accidentally became relevant. Well, I that's
0: a it's a very insightful comment because I think it goes to really like the heart of disagreement I've seen in this film. And and if this is too big of a segue, you let me know and we can pull back. But The biggest disagreement I've seen in this film on Reddit and other forums and and on like fan theory sites is the idea of whether this was, and I said this in in the intro, there really was a monster in this film, if Simon's a real entity. And I think if we look at what you're saying, it sort of underscores the idea that the natural, to a large extent, can be just as horrifying, if not more horrifying, than a monster in a horror film, that there are these natural evils, as you called it, um, and there's a lot of horror films that we've gone over in this podcast that have this as an element in them, and I think there's some of the better ones, actually. So I, I, you know, it's really interesting to think of this as a purely naturalistic movie that if there is no Simon, there is that this person really is. Um, mentally unraveling, and that's all there is. Um, It's sort of, you could probably find other elements of this film that underscore the idea that everything bad that happens is a natural thing. And on to the point that you made about, you know, um, insane asylum films having very obvious tropes, that's totally true. What I liked about this movie is that, like, it made me think those tropes were coming, but then handed me something very different. I immediately thought, for example, that Gordon had been a previous inmate. Uh, I'm sorry, not inmate, an insane asylum patient. That was my first... Reaction. It was so overt that I felt really dumb. Like by the end of it, I just felt had in a lot of ways. um So that was the first one. Obviously, the ghost following them around. Maybe we can get into the deleted scene, the notorious deleted scene on the DVD. I don't know if you guys are aware of like the alternate ending. There's an additional character that they filmed and took out for. Do you guys, are you guys aware of this? Garrett, you must know no, this. I don't
3: know what you were talking about.
0: Okay.
1: I saw it when when I first viewed the film like you know, related one it back in two thousand and one when it came out, but it's been so long I've actually forgotten about it,
0: yeah, I so you know i I trying to think where I was going with this um yeah I, I i I like the idea that this movie sort of shifted that on me like that trope, which is good, um it sort of put that trope on its head for me i th- I think there were some elements of tropiness that that were st- that this movie had actually had um but, um, yeah, the, the the distinction between sort of natural evil and supernatural evil is a, an ample part of, I think, discussing this film. I'm curious to see where you guys land. I don't know if this is the right time to bring it up, but I'm curious to see where you guys
3: land on that. This, this movie could be an OSHA training video for asbestos treatment and just have that be it and then just leave it at that.
1: Okay, actually, I, I want to say before we move on, really quickly, I do want to say something else about the, the atmosphere since Jonah brought it up. And I want to... Yeah. Jim mentioned it too because it's the chair. Something which you might not realize just watching the film is that they did almost no set design for this film. This place was a real place, Danvers State Mental Hospital in Massachusetts. And they they filmed the, the the movie there. They just basically came into the place and did very very little to change it, and just shot what they found. So that that chair that you mentioned, Jim, it's on and it's on the poster. That's something that was like they, that they found there. Now, I mean, I, I I I grant you there isn't necessarily some sort of cosmic significance to it, some greater overarching theme to it. But I mean, just think about the story that that tells. That was, it, was, it was a wheelchair of sorts that was you know carrying how god knows how many mental patients to this snake pit over time and it just gets abandoned there and and it's so it's the history that calls out through, through the, the literal walls of the institution that, that that that's part of what sparks my imagination so yeah i mean it, it's not so much that the thing in and of itself is scary so much as that what it invites you to imagine about the past of this place is quite terrifying
3: i feel like i i hear you and that's a great point and one i hadn't considered and i feel like that historical context is so buried in the paper thin plot that it, it disrespects that heritage. It should spend more look, it doesn't have to be a documentary. But the environment they're in is terrifying enough, as I said, that they could have focused more on what on on the actual things that they were filming rather than se- then working those props into their story making them the story you know so like I, I don't know it, Like Blair Witch Project comes to mind in a way how it could be completely fictionalized but using that I don't know if I'm making any sense but using <laughs> that environment would would do a better job of conveying terror because it actually happened
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna let Jim go here in a second, but before I I do, I want to say that this film has actually been compared to Blair Witch in a lot of ways, precisely for what you've what you've just said, Jonah. And we did have a comment in uh, the chat that said that maybe important that said um budget might have played into this aspect or or not what we're talking about here, um, which is interesting. Go ahead, Jim.
2: Well, I, I mean, just about that real quick, Garrett. I think you told me back when we watched this a few years ago that uh, that this was that they found the place first and then decided to make the movie based upon the place they found. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, the the inspiration was twofold. Uh, So uh, Brad Anderson, the director and co-writer, yeah, you know, he grew up in Boston and he drove past the institution several times on the highway and so he saw it off in the distance and so it sort of lingered in his mind. and uh, he took like an urban spelunking thing uh, to, to win, in which he explored it. And that was a big part of the inspiration. But the other half of the inspiration, and this is again something that I absolutely love about this, is that the, the basic story of Gordon was a true story. There was some, some guy who, worked, you know, some bureaucrat or something like that, worked in Boston. Um, you know, his like, wife had a miscarriage and he came home one day and she, like, s- you know, spilled dinner or something like that. And he snapped and killed her and, like, butchered her and then went back to work the next day as if nothing happened. And then like a week or two later, they found out what happened. They arrested him. They asked him why he did it. And he had no recollection. He had absolutely no memory of having done this. Now, I I didn't know that specific fact the first time I saw the movie, but I did know that that basic psychology is real and that kind of I mean, the, 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 the psychology in this film is actually spot on. I mean, I don't know if they had researchers, but the, uh, it, it's it's quite accurate to the sort of clinical, both the historical and the clinical aspects of it. Um, so yeah, so that happened. And then when you think about it that way, the, the extra layer of horror that that adds onto it, it's that really just about anybody could be Gordon. You know, I mean, if, if you have just the bad day, the wrong day, uh, the pressures line up against you somehow, you could snap and do something absolutely horrifying and have no memory of it whatsoever. Um, and if that's not fucking terrifying, then I don't know what is.
2: yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a theme that we talked about with the bug um and and that's a theme that resonates with me as well. um but. I guess so. One of the we were we were starting to talk about the characters and Noah. You said that you found the character relationships to be compelling, although at some points you thought it was too talky. If I'm summarizing your opinion, and, and yes. And
0: I think the technical term for that is blue collar compelling. I think is maybe the technical science. That was a joke, but it was compelling for kind of blue collar conversation. Maybe that maybe that's why you know uh, we looked at it maybe differently. Was it? It, it was a little yeah i mean it, it kept me interested but you, i don't know i've i've been on crews like that where it's kind of like that's sort of the 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 way that i'm not a, not asbestos but plumbing specifically where it's like uh, in construction work where it's kind of like you know that's that's normal conversation but in between all of that normal conversation and bullshit and fucking around with each other you actually get to see some depth in these characters i mean even the the youngest kid who's new on there who looks up to Gor- uh, gordon i felt that was compelling so anyway yeah i'm gonna call it blue collar compelling blue collar uh and
2: well, I mean that's and blue collar characters can be very compelling. I mean, Bugs Bug is rife with blue collar characters, I, I, you know. But I so I wrote down the three three main conflicts that I think are the centerpiece of this film, and uh, I'll talk. We we can talk about like one at a time, and I'll give maybe my reasons why I don't find these conflicts to be particularly compelling, and then hopefully all of you can can convince me of, of how wrong I am and how awesome this movie is. Um, but the first one I see is the conflict between Gordy and himself. So uh, my reading of this film says that there's there has to be some sort of uh, well let me let me go back. Let, let, let's talk about Gordy versus himself later. Um, I'm gonna I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't let's talk about Gordy versus Phil first. Uh, so the main conflict we have is Gordy versus Phil. Phil believes uh, we, we get one expository line where Phil extols Gordy's uh, virtues, says that previously he has been unflappable, but now things are looking a little shaky. Um, so I think Phil's objective in those scenes is to get Gordy back on beam, and Gordy's objective in those scenes is to get, Phil, uh, get help from Phil uh, for Gordy's own internal conflict, which I think we, we should talk about a little bit later. Um, that conflict doesn't, I think in order to have that conflict have the full amount of dramatic weight, I think we need to see Gordy have it all together. And the first scene that we have with Gordy, he's basically begging this guy to let him and his crew have the job. He seems really desperate when we first meet him. And he continues to be even more desperate and even more unhinged as the film goes on, which isn't, and and all of Phil's uh, methods to try and get Gordy back on beam are ineffectual or there's not much time given to uh, Phil's attempts to, uh, to, to resurrect Gordy in any way. Um, I think the scene that you referenced earlier, Garrett, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And uh, Phil says, well, I probably shouldn't have introduced Hank to Amy. Um, and then Gordy says, well, I hit my wife. I think that at the end of that scene, if Phil really says, no, Gordy, you need to stop that. What's the matter with you? Come on, man. You never do this. What's going on? Like, if there was even more tension and even more um, energy behind that scene rather than Phil going, fuck, I don't know what to do with that shit. uh, I think there would be, I I think we have more of a dramatic arc for that character. We can talk about some of the other ones that I've noted later, but I want to sort of pause to give you guys a chance to, to talk about the Gordy versus Phil conflict and whether or not I'm reading it wrong or reading it in a different way than you are.
1: I mean, uh, to yeah. me, I think the reason why he, I mean, I, I it would be interesting to see your choice, right? To have, to, to watch Phil react more potently, but to, uh, I mean, I, I thought the choice that was made worked very much because yeah, that's terrifying. I mean, if, if a, if a close friend of mine, colleague of mine, who I've known for a long time, tells me that he's started hitting his wife, I don't know how I would react. I think that would terrify me. Yeah, I would think, "Holy shit, my friend is is losing it," and I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help him. Um, I, and I'm suddenly quite afraid—not just you know for the job, but uh, for 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 everything. So that, to me, that's Phil's reaction is fear, and it's a. It's an understandable fear, so I, I found that quite compelling myself. Not,
0: not only is it appropriate, it's also more tense. I mean, to me, if there's an immediate arguing back, or trying to help, or even dialogue, it takes away from sort of the moment, the the, the harshness of the the action, the fact that a friend who's that close isn't entirely sure how to respond. That adds a kind of um, uh, not only does it, it it show the susceptibility of Gordon um, and to a certain extent, make you want to empathize with him. But I saw myself trying to like ask myself the question, if I was Phil, how would I even respond to that? Like I, and I wouldn't know what to say. Like, what do you say? It's going to be okay. Like anything you say, I mean, a is, is going to make the conversation, the scene, let's say um, less tense. I wouldn't say less meaningful because there's plenty that Phil could say that would fill the gap that would fill the gap. Phil would fill again. Uh, but you know, I, I just, sometimes the best response is not saying anything, not knowing what to say and letting that sit, letting something sit. Um, that subtlety enhanced that scene way more to me. Uh, so I, I just completely disagree with Jim and I'm angry at you, Jim, because I was supposed to be on your side. I, we, I originally hated this film. There's previous sessions where I've talked so much shit to Garrett. And I said, when we do our session nine, one Garrett, I'm going to be on you. And now I'm just agreeing with Garrett. So yeah, there's God's dead. What can I say? This makes no sense. Anyway, but
2: you, you made the mistake of rewatching the movie twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's not a mistake. Like if you like a movie, that's a good thing. Like I'm not, and, and if you have a criticism of a movie, that's a good thing too. Um. So okay. So I I disagree. Uh, we can go. I uh, I disagree. Not as a like you guys are responding as though you are um, humans in this situation and your best friend can confess this thing and you wouldn't know how to respond. And that's fair. Um, What I'm responding to is if I'm looking for the, to accentuate the drama of this film and accentuate the deepness of these characters, then I think I need more from Phil than uh, first, uh, not being able to respond in the car and then later sort of betraying Gordy to Mike by saying, well, we, we need to get someone else on this job. We need to give Gordy some time off. He's, he's fucking hitting his wife and shit. It's, uh, he's he gone. was saving it all up, Jim.
0: He was saving all that emotion up for the fuck you. That's why the camera pans in on him. All that emotion going back and forth with Gordon. He could have said so much, but what he did is he saved it and it just all came out in that fuck you scene. That's my theory
2: all right well uh that's uh i think that was just an uh an excuse to have david caruso do a david caruso thing um all right let's move on to uh, what i'm identifying as the second conflict and that's hank versus phil hank is sleeping with phil's wife or uh ex-girlfriend uh phil's not too happy about that and that's all that could be said about that conflict um that's that's the extent of hank's character. Uh, in his relation to the other characters there. Um, And so when I argue that the conflicts of this film might be relatively shallow, um, I don't know. I think that one's a little inarguable, but maybe you disagree.
1: I mean, I would say certainly that's not a deep conflict, but I kind of see, saw that as a bit of a red herring is how I interpreted that. I, you know, I, I thought that that was going to be a bigger conflict, but once it didn't develop into one, you know, I think it, it's kind of like what Noah said about assuming that Gordo was going to have been a former patient, you know, it, it was a way of misdirecting you to looking at something else so that you you didn't see what, you know, the, the, the heavy shit that actually ended up coming down the pipeline. Um, so that's, but that's, yeah, that was how I read it.
2: Okay, all right. Um, fair. Um, yeah, that red herring didn't work for me. Mostly, I'm just waiting for that conflict to come to to come to uh, for there to be an arc associated with that conflict. Um, okay, so the third one that I identified was Mike versus the mystery. Um, and that's basically Mike trying to look through the session tapes. To figure out what's going on here, um, and Mike versus the mystery is there to my mind that conflict is there to inform the Gordy versus himself conflict. That there's, and we also get this. We're going back to the environment. We get this satanic imagery on the on the walls. Um, there's an idea about some sort of possession possibly uh satanic rituals uh going on uh in the in the exposition dump that mike has at the beginning um so this but this mystery doesn't doesn't reach too much of a fruition for me um until we get to the session nine tape and then we get revealed that there's this Simon character. Now, Noah, you referred to this earlier, um, and basically our understanding of Simon will, in your mind, inform how we understand the rest of the film. Um, I'm having some trouble placing Simon within the context of this, of this, uh, of the larger structure of this film. So what I'm, struggling with what i what i think i understand about this film is that simon is this entity that took over the mary character and possibly is taking over uh gordon and then that's why he sort of kills his wife and and all that stuff um is that the way the rest of you read it or how does that how does that jive with what your interpretations
3: of simon are Uh, i'm not sure but I did make this one note that I think may lead to a deeper discussion. Nine sessions, nine levels of hell, question mark. So, you know, nine circles of hell. So I wonder if that relates, and I wrote that early on into the film before. It's one of my earlier notes. But I wonder as, a, as the tapes go on, as the mystery unfolds and as it gets deeper and we get closer to the climax or nadir of the story as it would be does that comport in any way is there some sort of even thin connection between the nine between descending deeper into hell and the tapes i i
0: think the only connection there would be i think it'd be a surface level connection maybe related to like the graffiti of the the pentagram and the 666 but i think that's as far as it goes to me um i didn't really
3: like i said but yeah nine is not an accident nothing is accidental in movies yeah that's a good point
1: well I I mean, mean, it's worth, it's worth noting,
3: written, but they're not accidental what, what's that
1: i was gonna say it's worth noting for the record that the original title of the film before they changed it to session nine was the hidden altar um as in you know the alternate personality and and you know she was you know, simon is going to be the the hidden altar and then they they didn't like that one and they changed it to session nine so for whatever that's worth
0: yeah, so uh, to, um, t- I think I understand what I what Jim is saying. I mean, so Simon to me, um, God, Jim, I, I have the complete opposite interpretation of everything you've said so far tonight, which is interesting. Um, so Simon to me was very clear, right? So you have, let's think of the characters that uh, um, Mary Hobbs, uh, the personalities rather that Mary Hobbs is going through, right? There's the princess, which is, um, as he notes, as Mike notes, childlike innocence or something like that. And she she speaks through the tongue, right? That's her realm. Her realm is the tongue talking. Billy's the other alternative, uh, uh, um, pers- alternate personality, and he's kind of like a childlike protective and he's in the eyes, right? So he tries to protect Princess from seeing the things that she's seen, right? So you have the tongue in the eyes, you have the princess and Billy, and then Simon comes in at the very end as being, Simon is very different. I, I get. I, 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 so far as it's a criticism and it's a little funky, Simon's funky, I think it's because Simon is you can argue that the princess and Billy are definitely a part of Mary, but there's a question mark over is Simon a part of Mary or is Simon a distinct abstract entity. Right. Um, and I think the film to me, I want to the cat out of the bag thing for the film to me is that I get the idea that Simon actually is a distinct entity because when we first see Gordon enter the asylum, Gordon hears, hello, Gordon, and there's no tape playing. Um, and to me, that was enough there was enough weight on that that made me sort of fall into the camp of people who thinks that Simon was a real thing. And I like that interpretation better because Simon is very ambiguous in this. We don't know what Simon is. We don't know any I mean, it wouldn't even be fair to call him a demon to call him. And we don't know what Simon is. Simon is this ambiguous thing that is able to both talk to Gordon and to Mary. That's enough for me to make me think that, you know, it's not a personality a particular personality of mary Hobbes. um but um in terms of mary and the session tapes serving as an analog for gordon's disassociation from reality um i thought that simon's place within that context was the most clear personality right childlike innocence how does that relate to gordon we can make some arguments uh, child-like protective, protecting your family, right? How does that relate to Gordon? We can make some arguments. There's some connections there. But I don't think those connections are as thick or as obvious as Simon, because Simon is the thing that the film wants us to believe is what took over when Gordon slapped his wife, hit his wife. Simon is the thing that came over Mary Hobbs when Mary Hobbs killed her brother and her parents. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, Simon is that thing that talks to both Mary and to Gordon, um, and to that extent, we could say one of two things. Perhaps um, Simon is a distinct entity that is there within the confines of, let's say, the insane asylum—a a kind of grudgian, sort of samuraian sort of thing, um, where you know it exists in the area of the weak and the wounded. And if you're susceptible to it when you walk in, it takes over, right? So there's one interpretation there, and I think that analog would work if we look at it that way between Mary. And Gordon. Um, The other way to look at it is that, really quickly, the other way to look at it is just that um, Simon is the thing in all of us that um, says, go ahead and do it whenever shit gets really hard and you want to do that thing that you know you shouldn't do and you're under pressure. It's not necessarily a person, but it's that desire, that fear, that thing that's in there, that's psychological, purely naturalistic psychological component right it's the to get poetic the asbestos in all of our minds just threw that out there probably no connection but uh yeah like so depending so i guess what i would say to jim is that so far as mary hobbs and the session tape serve as an analog for gordon i actually think where simon comes into play it's the most obvious not the least obvious or problematic or anything like that
2: well i mean i agree with i agree with most of what you said there um i guess yeah, so I, I'm, I, I think we're not actually on opposite sides of this argument. Um, what I do think is that there can be some other interpretations about what Simon is, and then the relationship between the Mike versus the mystery conflict and the main conflict of the film, Gordon versus himself, isn't altogether clear until the very, very end. And even then, uh, we're left with some with some loose ends. I'm okay with that ambiguity, uh, but when we've gotten less to hang on to up until that point, uh, I think I find that to be lacking in the film a little bit. But uh, go ahead, Jim.
3: All right, so this is not really going to be substantiated by anything, but I had an interesting thought about what Simon might be. Um, and and this is going to kind of tie things together. Now, as I said, one of my favorite aspects of this film was the cinematography, and there are two shots in particular, two scenes, which stood out to me the most. One is when, I'm I'm guessing, Gordon was looking up at the stairwell, and he's surrounded by pitch black in the background, where a wall ends, and then a white traveling down the hallway and it's almost like it's a clear dividing line it's almost like it was like two shots put together uh so it's very stark it's literally it's
0: on Garrett's screen I'll show it
3: yeah it's black hold on let me I want to be on yeah okay so it's like black against white and it's very literal. A, a first year film student would look at that and say darkness against, you know, the light against the darkness. The second was the scene when the young kid was running down the hallway who's scared of darkness. And now usually light terminates into darkness. It's, it's the light where suddenly the darkness is at the end of the hallway. But here it's the other way around. The darkness is chasing him like a ghost like an actual entity. And I'm saying that between these two things, the darkness behind Phil is Simon, the darkness chasing Jeff is Simon. Darkness, lack of light, is a natural occurring phenomenon. It's actually the thing that precedes light. So again, like it's an eternal, you know, that first there was darkness, then there was light. So Simon is present in the absence of us uh, seeing him, he's everywhere. He's the darkness behind Phil, he's the darkness chasing Jeff, that fear that's chasing Jeff. And um, so that's what I'm saying that it's Simon, I'm not saying the darkness is an anth- I'm not anthropomorphizing him, but I'm saying that it's that fear, the sight, the, the mind, the, the unknown is what, uh, and the darkness within ourselves it's what's permeating the walls this is very f- film studies it's very self masturbatory but it's <laughs> it's kind of how i would if i were to have to have to write a five-page paper on the film i might go there
0: yeah i have uh, i have the screenshot up on garrett's uh, thing there you go darkness and asbestos that should have been the tagline for the film jonah darkness and asbestos Uh, We have a comment in the chat that says, uh, "From Greg, uh, sorry, Greg Chaos." That says, "Uh, "Simon as an external threat is the most terrifying aspect of the movie. It triggers the same fear that possession invokes—some unknown force infecting otherwise good people with evil."
1: Okay, I like that, and I like, you know, Noah. The case that you made uh, because uh, uh, Gordo hears the voice when he comes in. Um, I'm, I think that's that's an interesting argument, but for me personally. Uh, I feel the exact opposite way um, I you know one of one of my the formative experiences I had when I was a kid growing up was watching scooby doo and you know it was, it was it was one of the things that always stuck me about scooby Doo was like you know it always looks like it 's supernatural, but then when you peel back the veneer it 's really just people it 's really just human beings it 's really just human nature that's, that' that's that's really behind it and that to me is always scarier, and I hate it when Uh, horror movies try to pass themselves off as based on a true story uh, and and they involve something supernatural because uh, you got dyed in the wool naturalist here i think the the, the natural world the asbestos if we're going to keep running with that is the scariest thing um and and again like i said i I previously praised you know the, the the psychology in the film you know the the satanic horror ritual abuse syndrome all that happened the the um uh 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 uh, uh, crap! When you scramble someone's brains, yeah, uh, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, lobotomy. The Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if lost the word for something there. The, the the lobotomy. All that's real. You know, uh, uh, all that stuff was was very much actual and practiced. And 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 institutions like this were genuine snake pits that did horrible things. Um, and I find that reality, that actual history to be, you know, a a much more sort of compelling backdrop to a fictional story that that sticks to that reality. And again, like I said, the the story of Gordo snapping was based on a real case. And to me, I find it a lot more terrifying to think that, you know, any one of us, not that we're going to be visited by a demon and transformed into a killer, Uh, But rather that that something about ourselves as we exist as human beings just could could somehow turn on us and make us do something terrible to someone that we love. But Um, that to me, I find much more terrifying than the idea of a a ghost or a spirit or something out there living.
3: But what happened at the hospital is far more terrifying than any story you could have written unless the story you're writing is what happened at the hospital if you were going to do a horror film at Auschwitz right like no matter how terrible the situations are in the film Auschwitz far exceeds whatever the film could attempt to do the background of Auschwitz is more terrifying than the movie is going to be so what happened at the hospital I think is just much more interesting and terrifying story because it was it was real, than. The, but again, a
1: lot movie. of this movie Let's, is real. I mean, again, the, what happened to Gordo was based on a real case. Now, granted, there there was no asbestos team and all that stuff. So that, that that aspect of it is fictional. I may but have missed it, that part. It, it, it's it's precisely because it is not just real but realistic to me, and it gets the psychology right, um, that I find you know that's that's something that makes this film so very, I'm, very. I'm
3: gonna we talked at the beginning of the podcast is about spoilers and I'm watched this film. But again, I watched a, a crap version of it. So I'm going to ask you for the sake of me and for the sake of spoiling the film, assuming that our audience has already seen it. Can you explain the ending twist again for, for clarification for me and for ever anyone else listening?
1: Sorry, I'll give you my take on it. Uh, So I I will agree with Jim on something here. I I did think that one of the weaknesses of the film is is that it's the character Mike that discovers the tapes and he's the one that's listening to him. Um, He's kind of, you know, at that point in the film, at least somewhat of an extraneous character. And he does seem to only exist so we as the audience can hear the tapes. Um, and that I think is is a bit of a, a shortcoming. Uh, it would have you know at a minimum, it would have been nice to have had Mike's character more deeply involved in the events in the final act of the film rather than just sitting there listening and possibly the second act too, rather than just sitting there listening to the tapes. Um, but I think you know that, Point being acknowledged, the, the you know the the function of the tapes again to me is at least threefold. One, it's just to set the mood to be creepy and scary, to to further uh, you know sort of show the backstory and the reality uh, of of this this scary ass mental hospital. Uh, uh, two, to sort of shed a light on you know again this this basic idea of you know uh, this affected uh, uh, associated identity disorder or as it used to be called uh, multiple personality disorder. Um, uh, to show that it was real then you know, here, here's here was a patient who was uh, had this condition, and now Gordo has is, has sort of fallen to that same condition as well. Um, and then third, it, you know it, it sort of it, it establishes you know these 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 characters, you know of of mary um, uh, you know Mary Hobbs, and then then the, her her various altered personalities sort of as as independent characters in and of themselves, you know, even though they're not, on screen. I mean the one thing things I love again talk back to cinematography is that we hear Mary Hobbs talking for so long until we finally see a, a shot of her in her files. And it's like after hearing her talk and then and then the camera pans over and you finally see what she looks like, uh, it somehow you know, fleshes fleshed her out to me in a way that was deeply disturbing and very, very you know very, very scary for me. Um, so that, that final bit at the end, uh, oh, another uh, piece of trivia quickly, uh, that final line, which I, uh, I really like, and no, I take it you did too, I live in the weak and the wounded, uh, the original line in the screenplay was going to be, I live in the gut, you know, to keep everything sort of anatomical, you know, I live in, in, in the mouth, I live in the eyes, I live in the gut. Um, but again, the screenwriter sort of decided that, that, you know, that they wanted to break the symmetry, the anatomical symmetry to go off into something that was a little bit more.
0: But uh, it's similar. Right. But that's the thing is like, it's the same message, right? I live in the, I live in the snap decision, the instantaneous, the thing I feel initially in my gut, right? The thing I want to do fast without thinking. Right. Which I think is cool.
3: So I get that Gordon killed his wife, but the whole wake up, Gordon, wake up, Gordon, what's the twist that jarred you?
1: Oh, well, one of the things which you may not have noticed, I mean, again, it's something else I didn't notice, but when, uh, in that final scene, when David Caruso's character is is, is calling him on the, the, the walkie-talkie, there is no sketch. You know, normally, like when you hit a walkie-talkie, there's a, that starts off, it lets you know it's talking. You don't hear that because he's not actually using the walkie-talkie. That was all
0: Gordo. That was David all Gordo. Caruso's
1: dead, and it's just in his head. And I, I thought that was a real nice touch. Wait,
3: wait, wait. So, so Phil is dead too, then?
1: Phil is dead at the final in the final sequence. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and he's everybody.
3: The whole movie. It's not like the whole thing was all in his head, right? No, not the whole movie. Just just at the end. Yeah, that's identity.
0: Oh God, don't mention that piece. (laughs) Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead, Jim. I know Jim had a lot to say to
2: Garrett. So, So, Garrett, for you, this film is the story of somebody who, because of human frailty, because of the darkness that. Uh, or perhaps even just because we're um, often emotional actors, uh, this is uh, the story of somebody who snaps, does something terrible, feels awful about it, and then does more awful, like, and then what? Like, is that the... That's is the machinist. Of the crutch you... of
1: the story for you? Well, the Machinist was also directed by Brad Anderson.
3: Oh, right, and that's like somebody does something horrible and the whole movie's about the regret and furthering that, being, making a bad situation worse. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so obviously it's a theme that Anderson is, likes to play with.
3: Um, I, by uh, the way, I liked this movie more when I realized 15 minutes, like halfway through it, that I was like, oh, this is the same dude. I like The Machinist. I don't like this movie, but I like The Machinist. So I like it more knowing that he did The Machinist. So
1: that's interesting. Uh, sort of inherited uh, appreciation, uh, but yeah. Jim. So to answer your point, um, uh, again, it, it's that. I mean, again, the, the it's no longer the correct term, but you know, multiple personality disorder obviously is what they're 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 sort of playing with here. Um, and and Gordo didn't just snap and do something terrible. Gordo snapped and had a disassociative episode where a different you know alter, a different aspect of his person, came to the forefront. And took control, and that never goes away. That's that's sort of, you know, I mean, maybe it does with therapy or something like that. But you know, but for the purposes of the film, it doesn't go away. It's there the whole time. It just doesn't come out again until the end. So the the you know he's 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 been taken over at the end, and he you know the 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 killer in him, the killer personality, alternate personality, his Simon, if you want to put it that way, um, uh, is the one that does the terrible thing. Does that at least? Parse the, the, yeah
2: that, that answers my question um, and I guess for me that's a by itself that's a compelling story um, I don't think that this is the best version of that story though uh, partially uh, partially because I need to see a better a a better point a to go to the point B um, I need to see something uh, I need to see Gordy at his at his best and then watch the slow decline um, or the quick decline or the whatever decline like I need I, I think I need to see more of a point a and that's where the I think the film the the depth of the film's characters uh, would I, I think I would see more depth in these in this film's characters if I had seen a little bit more of the point A. Um, I, I by itself, I think the story that you're telling about this film is better than the film, <laughs> uh, uh, which I think is a, a thing that I've said before. But a lot of this is stuff that we talked about with Bug, and the, and if we're comparing the two films, we see we see a real point A with Agnes, and then a, a definite decline to a point B by the end of it. And and so putting these two films in conversation with each other, I think that. Uh, you know, obviously, Bug has a has a leg up, in my view. But uh, go ahead. I, I,
1: I actually, I, I disagree staunchly. I mean, I think that the the character arcs between uh, Agnes and Bug and Gordo are very, very similar. I mean, I don't think we 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 are not. We may be seeing Agnes at her best at the beginning of Bug, but she is not at all good. She's in a very bad place. And while Gordo definitely is, is in a bad place, too, at the start of it, I agree, you know, you're not seeing the, sort of the, the, the complete decline and fall, but based on how the film is paced out, it kind of has to work that way. But I think you do see him at, in a point A, uh, to use that terminology, when you see how remorseful he is about hitting his wife. I mean, you see yes. so much empathy. So he's so sorry. He feels so bad. He's calling her saying he wants to come home. And it, I mean, that's him at his, you know, at his best, as it were, in the sense of his, his most sympathetic, his most empathetic and then you know the, the 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 flip side the homicidal mania is the, is the downside
2: yeah 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 and and my, mind you i'm not saying that agnes was the ideal citizen uh at the beginning of beginning of bug obviously she needs to start off in a very lonely and very desperate place and then go even further and and once again i'm not i'm not necessarily arguing for a purely linear um story what i'm arguing for is uh it seems like Gordon, Gordy starts at point a and his his point B is is pretty close to his point a he starts out very remorseful he starts out in a desperate place he starts out in this uh in, in this rather precarious position and I don't see much of an arc to his character that's that's my argument is that there's there's not enough, and if you want to make it a plateau, if you want to make it, you know, just a steep decline, if you want to make it a sudden snap, if you want to, I don't care what you do, I just need to see more of him at the beginning to uh, to solidify this as a downfall for me, a tragic arc, if you will. Um.
0: So a couple I things, couple things. Sorry, I was there. typing to our chat. Uh, a couple things. One is. Um, this is going to be weird but the thing that i actually saw as part of the decline for gordo was the scene where david caruso says fuck you because it was so weird that i took it to be kind of like seeing the mental decline from the perspective of gordo i I can't be the only one who saw that like the way the camera rolls up on him, it's just so weird and different that it's almost like you're 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 seeing um let's say the mental collapse but it's just so strange that sequence where he says hey fuck you and and Gordo's look on his face is so odd that I thought this is part of a, this is a clear aspect of decline, which I guess may not entirely have been their point.
3: To me, that scene of the zoom in, it it was clearly done. It looked like home video. It looked very grainy, very lo fi. Well, there's a
0: reason for that. This is the, my understanding is that this is the first digital film in 24P ever, ever made.
3: What I'm saying is that scene in particular
0: looked far. Looked like a documentary shot or
3: something. It looked so crappy on purpose that it was effective. Um, So I think that definitely was trying to convey a story or emotion in that particular shot. That was an artistic choice. It was almost like there was a fisheye lens too, the, the angle and everything. It was, like I said, I liked the cinematography in the film and that particularly evoked an emotion that other scenes that wanted to, didn't that was a very purposeful uh shot that probably took multiple takes to get the angle and everything right yeah best
0: comment was uh uh, they portrayed his mental decline with a decline in filmmaking (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's great so uh i i kind of have a personal story for you that's related to something um Well, somewhat, I guess, what we're dancing around here. So um, as I was watching this movie, one of the things that's going on like in my life, um, and I I don't mean to segue too much because I think this actually has to do with some of the things we've been talking about, is um, I've been going through my grandparents' estate, their home that they've had for like 60 years. And cleaning things out and finding old family heirlooms and things, right? So no one's living there anymore, and this is a house that's been been there for sixty three years. My grandfather built it, right? So I have all this like memory in my brain from when I was a kid. Little areas of the house that I'm not supposed to go into. The attic, there's almost like this mythical element. I remember, don't go into the attic. There's a monster up there. There's particular things in the garage. And now that I'm thirty four and I'm in charge of essentially maintaining the place and doing what I need to do. I've been, you know, going through the garage and pulling out old slides, old photos. So, um my family has a significant um, uh, history with mental illness especially on the on the female side. So, my mom and my aunt um, had mental disorders. My mom was a schizophrenic, for example. Her mom, my grandmother, was a schizophrenic. And I believe my great-grandmother also had significant significant mental issues. Um, it's usually on the female side, kind of wigged me out when I got my psych degree. I remember taking a class on schizophrenia and I, I was taught that like it can come on late. Um, even in your like late teens, which wigged me the hell out because I was like in my late teens when I was taking this class. Anyway, um, so I'm going through the house, and um, I remember my mom and my aunt telling me stories that my grandmother, um, when uh, they were growing up, that she would like become a different person and have these episodes where she would get um, violent, violent to my grandfather, to them. And she would disassociate from reality. My grandfather told me stories about this when I got older. Um, and there's apparently tapes of her. Like they've, they have like tapes of her talking and doing. So I'm going through the house. And uh, just to show you, I brought a couple things to kind of show you. So this is my grandmother right there. She was very pretty. She's from Tennessee. And I found a couple notes, uh, actually letters, that she wrote um, while she could see herself having a mental decline. So she would have these moments of lucidity where she was able to reflect on the things that she did. And so um, as I'm watching session nine, I'm going back and forth to the house, picking up stuff, doing this. And um, it was really odd. It reminded me of Mike in a lot of ways. I know that sounds crazy. I mean, I didn't sit there with like a real listening to shit, but um, I found uh, like a, a letter called, um, that she wrote, I guess for herself called, I had a mental breakdown, which is kind of crazy. It's like seven pages. And it's about how she, when she was young, she witnessed her parents being murdered. Which is always fun. Um, in in their
3: home. Or this is their short fiction.
0: No, it's real. My uh, my grandmother actually, her a uh, sister. So my, I guess my grand aunt. I guess. Um, her husband broke into their home and shot. Uh, my great, be my great grandparents shot them to death while they were in bed. So my grandmother saw this, like actually witnessed the entire thing. So, um, for a long time, she just sort of pretended it didn't happen. And so that's what that little thing was about. It's about sort of how she worked through it and just sort of like pretended that didn't happen for her in a lot of ways. Right. So I'm going through the house and I'm like, okay, well, that's a really fucking terrifying and awful and all of that stuff. And then I found another letter that she wrote to my, uh, to my grandfather and her kids, my mom and my aunt. And, um, I'm not going to read it to you, but it's essentially like a handwritten letter that talks about um the fact that she's starting to realize her disassociation that it's becoming becoming more prominent and that she's it's it's almost like a suicide letter it's not written it's it's written like that but she's not going to commit suicide it's just that she thinks that she's going to at a certain point completely lose herself in her own psychosis because nothing's working right and um i just i felt that was interesting i'm sitting here reading this and there's a kind of reflection on one's own Um, trauma, psychological trauma, one's own recognition of severe psychological issues that sort of uh, that impact other people around them. So for example, she talks about like um, how her kids talk about when she's in a a, a particular sort of state, a violent state is being an entirely different person than the mom that they know. And there's apology after apology about this. It's written very well. Um, And so I, I, you know, I, I'm, this is happening as I'm watching session nine and I'm I'm certainly probably bringing a lot of my own shit into this, but, um, I just thought it was a weird coincidence. I'm going through the house. I I literally pulled a mic the last week. I've just been sitting there pulling shit out and finding stuff about my family that, um, was somewhat similar. I, she was never diagnosed with any kind of dissociative identity disorder. That's the actual term now for multiple personality, but, um, she was uh, diagnosed with a particular type of schizophrenia as was my mom. But, uh, I, so I, I say all that to say that um, I want to say two things. I actually think that the idea that we have our own Simon to a certain extent is is almost scarier than the idea that Simon is this abstract entity that pushes. There's an X Files episode that's somewhat similar to this. That there's a that there's a kind of thing there that makes you do it externally. I like the idea that. I shouldn't say I like the idea. I think it's more terrifying that we all have this capacity to do that, like what Garrett was saying earlier, um, but also that we have the ability to get to a place where we can reflect on those things, uh, that we can be confronted with those things and think about those things. Um, is, uh, it, and It's an interesting part of who we are as people. I, I felt that that was... Uh, kind of a weird connection as i was exploring this house i was like this is I'm just going to call this session 10 session 11 every time i go over been over there 13 times now this is session 13 what what tapes am i going to find now anyway i thought i would share that with you i apologize if that's super no, personal that's, or, or crazy but um that's yeah
2: a really moving story um that's uh yeah i mean I, I i hate to bring it back to the film this way but but do you think that that might be as might be uh, why you've sort of reversed courses on this film that you've found this really intense personal connection to it yeah
0: that's interesting um yeah maybe right like that's a really interesting thing i that's certainly possible um that in the note just consistently says simon says everywhere i don't know what that's about but um Is that fucking I mean, true yeah you know no, no, really no, oh my god dude if that would that would be okay yeah that would be <laughs> A- Atheist Noah would suddenly start uh, rethinking things if uh, if that was true. That'd be, be a little weird.
3: But yeah, so no. Um, kind of like knowing where all of a sudden <laughs> it's like, tell Noah not to watch Session 9. And it's like nobody knew what that meant until 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a
0: little, that would be. I'd, I'd probably be more terrified because it would tell me there was uh, either she watched session 9 in 1968 or uh or there really is something that this film is modeled after like a slender manian sort of thing anyway
1: yeah well, it's it, 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 Simon isn't all that uncommon I mean there's yeah, another ox yeah. right there
0: yeah yeah that's yeah that's true that's true that would have that would have wigged me out thanks Jim now I'm gonna I'm gonna sc- scour the whole note for anything that says Simon um yeah maybe that may have changed my view on it to be honest with you I don't know um yeah, I uh I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. But um I thought I would share that with
3: you guys. Kind of crazy.
2: See, I go ahead. But just go ahead.
3: Thank you for sharing that with us. That's awesome.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Noah. I I echo that. I and it's uh it's funny because during this session like you've told stories that i like better than the one i watched um which uh, uh sort of getting back to to the film but i i i find that to be really like i now i really do want to write a screenplay of uh of your of your life um but that's yeah that's really compelling shit that you have there
0: well i, I think it i maybe connects to the idea that like guilt regret susceptibility to a large extent like we're, we're dancing around issues in this film of like allowing the demons in right like that phrase allowing the demons in. whether those demons are actual whether they're a part of our own psychological makeup really interesting i mean one of the things we haven't talked about is like the idea of a of the orbital class the the thing that causes the lobotomy is like you know that was used to remove suicidal depression um things like that to stop a lot of things um where people were essentially reflecting on maybe traumatic events for example, that caused them to go crazy or to have um, excessive bouts of depression. So really interesting, the removal of memory, the removal of the things that we don't want to think about, disassociation from one's own actions, from the bad things in the world. Um, I think I got those things more the second and third time, maybe because of my own personal shit, and those felt more valuable now. Maybe, that, maybe that's how I would connect that, Jim. Um,
1: another thing it does is guilt. It, it, it allows you to live with the terrible things you've done, which is part of the reason why they would perform lobotomies on people who were psychopathic and so forth, you know, because they often would have such incredible difficulty coming to terms with what it was that they did that it tore them apart. You give them a, a, a partial or even a full frontal lobotomy, and that goes away. All that guilt, all that remorse about the horrible things you did, gone. Um, which, when you put it that way, it actually can make it seem like kind of a mercy, even though it's a ter- you know it's uh, considered a highly unethical treatment today, and I'm certainly not arguing the contrary. You can at least see why it is that it was considered standard treatment of care at the time.
0: Yeah, oddly enough, in um, one of the notes, and then I, I asked my grandfather once I found that this was in the notes, um, she received shock treatment. I didn't even know that was a thing in 68, 69 um but i guess they were still doing it back then so which is kind of crazy um but there's, to your point yeah uh but to your to your point jim or uh, uh, garrett um you know there is some similarities in this this film is similar to some of the other films that we've discussed i think on the issue of guilt one can think of maybe event horizon where it's every character has a kind of a, a guilt schema like whenever they talk about the guilt there's actually only the there's only one character that actually verbalizes and articulates his guilt, the, the Lawrence Fishburne character, but guilt's a huge element in Event Horizon. It's kind of the central theme of the film, just like it is in this one. Um, the Babadook, I think, is, is similar in the sense that it asks and maybe answers the question, is there really a monster here? Is this my own mental decline, right? That sort of thing. I put in here, and this may be a stretch, Pontypool, in the sense that Pontypool felt aesthetically a little bit like, um, like this film in the sense that it's a very centralized context, a very isolated setting, for the most part, the movie takes place, it's really a cinematography connection, everything takes place in one setting for the most part. But I think that the heaviest connection might actually be in triangle. And I don't know if you guys saw triangle, uh, but we did, Ben Carruth and I did this session on it. Um, Fixation removal of memory piece specifically, right? The need to to dissociate from the past reality, one's own sins, let's say. a very sure island in some sense actually now that i think about it. It, it very similar to shutter island too we haven't done shutter island i don't know if we're going to but um i don't know a little little bit of similarities related to other films do you guys have anything else you want to add about the movie uh, i guess actually before you answer that let me just explicitly ask the question i'm going to ask two questions just give me a straight shot answer um do you think this film meant to convey that simon exists like as an external entity yes or no do you find it scarier the idea that simon exists or not i'll start with you. uh
1: yeah i think i already answered this the second question i think it's yes. not scarier because i then i don't believe it you know i if, if it's supposed to be this demon this external ghost monster sort of thing uh then I i i can write it off as just being you know pure fiction and you know pure fiction can be fun i'm not saying that you should never be done but it's not as scary for me um so i'm i find it much scarier if. Um, uh, if he's not real, as to whether or not the film wanted it to be real, if you if you talk if you'd asked me before this conversation, I would have said absolutely not. But now that you got me thinking about it, no, I'm a little bit more ambivalent, so I, I think that the film is deliberately vague, deliberately ambiguous about it. Um, uh, and and that can be fun too, although personally, I suspect I probably would like it more if it if it. Uh, you know, ambiguity is a good thing. I don't want to say I don't like ambiguity, but I I do like my reading better. So,
0: got it, got it. What about you, Jim?
2: Um, I'm very similar to Garrett. Um, I think the film is deliberately trying to suggest that Simon is a real thing, though. That's that's I think where Garrett and I differ. Um, I think that uh, the otherwise the satanic bullshit in the beginning doesn't need to be there. Um. Otherwise, there is little connection between the Mike versus the mystery conflict and the Gordon versus himself conflict. Otherwise, those are like just two separate movies. So I think that Simon is implied within the context of the film to be a real thing, um, to be an an entity. Um, And that's partially why I like the stories we've told tonight more than I like the movie. I like the. I agree with the Garrett's uh, Garrett's answer to the second question. That is far more scary than that. You know, tomorrow I could accidentally just snap and hit a student or a or a significant other or a friend, and and that that could happen. Like that scares the shit out of me. Um, and that's not a real reflection of who I am. Um, and yet, it's a thing I did that would be that would be terribly compelling and and terribly frightening. Um, and uh, and so, if that's if this movie had sort of sunk its teeth into that conflict, I would probably be telling a different story. Um, and and perhaps that's one of the ways, one of the reasons in which we disagree about the uh, uh, about this film. That, uh that you guys are seeing that conflict a lot more clearer than than I am yeah so that's uh that's that's where that's how it responds to those questions go ahead Jonah
1: Jonah, Jonah, I want I want you to answer Noah's questions, but I want to interject there really quickly because I think uh, Jim set something up that I want to talk about later. So I want to make sure we put put a note in it. There, uh, there's a, as always, there's a feminist interpretation that we can make of this film, and I want to come back to that. So I want to make that explicit. I don't know if, if, it's, if, it, if it works after Jonah answers the questions, we can we can look at it that way.
3: Okay, so I think that Simon, um, I don't think that Simon is. Is real as in an entity Ooh, I'm Simon, you know, like Simon's coming down the hall. It's more of an ether that permeates through all of them as the darkness within us. It's Simon is asbestos embodied. I'll say. So um, I'll say, so by that, I'm going to say, no, Simon's not real. Um, But if he were real, that would make the movie much more, terrible for me because i don't believe as you should know by now i only like naturalistic horrors where we're the darkness we're the demons it's what we do to each other that's scary not things beyond us that control us it's it's what it's the actions that are scary not not that's
0: why that's why compliance and and the hunt are some of the scariest films to you for that exact reason i would imagine
3: yeah it's not what caused it to happen it's the fact that you did it You know, like, so in that, in the compliance example, Simon would be the caller and the people, the people who do the actions, you know what I mean? The fact that they obeyed Simon is, is basically, um, so, yeah, so no, I don't think Simon's real. We have to define what real is and um, my own definition, no, but if Simon were an actual entity embodied ghost or spirit that would cheapen the entire film for me um so i hope that simon's not real uh, let's keep it ambiguous let's keep it open and say we don't know maybe and each art having our own answers that we can defend makes a much more interesting conversation than just having a deus ex machina of yeah. oh simon's a ghost you know simon's real you know like that because that doesn't that's inconsistent with the rest of the film so to have him be real at the end is just lazy writing. The fact that he's not real is more consistent with the story.
0: So this is one of the few things we may all agree on, which is, or most of us agree on, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, so in case you guys don't know, we always have a segment that's meant to piss off our viewers. It's called "Say Something Feminist," um, and the reason we do this is we've noticed a distinct trend in all of our uh, film reviews. Accidentally, whenever we say anything about a feminist perspective, or really when we talk about women at all. Uh, in cinema, we inevitably get all of our dislikes and hate comments. And so we just decided to embrace that because we love you guys so much. So we're calling this segment Say Something Feminist. And I'm going to hand it over to Garrett because I couldn't give anything, anything to say from a feminist perspective in this movie, but Garrett has so I'm handing this off to him.
1: Yeah, uh, at, 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 it's at this point again, which I, I lament that this is, it's just four guys talking about this film. Um, but it is notable that, you know, again, reflecting on my own experience watching it, what scared me was the prospect that I might snap and kill somebody it never ever occurred to me that my wife might snap and kill me. That's something that doesn't scare me. Um, And for basically statistically pretty good reasons because men are much more likely to kill their wives than wives are to kill their husbands. That's not to say that doesn't happen, of course, it does. Um, But the, the story of the man snapping and killing his wife is something that to me, hits home, even though I have never, ever hit my wife, never had felt the impulse to hit my wife, you know, uh, uh, my just simple awareness of how human nature and how men and testosterone and all that shit works, it's something that can resonate with me when I see it happen in a film. Um, So, you know, it's, you know, not for nothing that basically all all the characters, all the characters really in the film are are men with the exception of Mary Hobbs, I suppose. And we have a couple of lines from Gordo's wife. Um, uh, But so the fact that this is a film about men, told from a male's perspective and we are a male audience talking about it you know and it, it isn't until i heard jim talking about it that it dawned on me that you know a woman watching this film might find something very very different scary about it not the prospect that they're going to snap but the prospect that someone they love might snap and kill them um so that for me i think is a very interesting reversal and in how i you know naively in my with my a male gaze looked at this at this this film. So those those, those are my sort of feminist thoughts. Um, I'm gonna,
3: I'm going to go off and jump before anyone jumps something because this is so close to what Garrett's saying. I once joked that Die Hard is really a film about urban architecture, cultural relative, relativism and marital misgivings. This film, Session 9, only touches on the domestic abuse issue and it's oh poor me. I hit my wife. I feel so bad. Well, what about the wife? We never get her perspective. This whole movie could be about domestic abuse. The whole movie could be about him coming home drunk and just beating the shit out of her. That could be the whole movie. And that would be a really fucked up horror movie. I mean, that would be terrible. So, I mean, and that would be really intense. And then he kills his wife at the end, but we don't get her perspective. So there's no feminist voices in this movie. We don't get the point. No female voices, we don't get the wife's story. What if the wife was a fucking bitch? We don't know. I know what I'm saying. Like, what if she pushed him to do it? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, I mean, we, the
2: the, oh. mig, the MGTOW guys out there are
3: yeah, like, like, fuck yeah, it. let's
2: make he it But uh, we're not set up to believe that. Um, no, I, think
3: I know, but like, I'm just the... saying. I'm not. First of all, let me disclaimer that's not my belief. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. So what I said, don't. Take In the context of I endorse that kind of behavior because I absolutely do not. What I'm saying is we don't get the perspective of the woman and it's particularly in a domestic abuse situation that's very unhealthy and it's sort of the fact that we're feeling sorry for the guy who's hitting his wife but not feeling sorry for the wife is really unhealthy. It's not balanced. So let me, let
0: me push, let me push back just a little with you guys on this and see what you guys think. So could, could we make the counter argument that since Mary Hobbs serves as the primary analog for, uh, for Gordo and things that he is going through, I mean, what would we say then of that, that she's sort of the initial, um, the initial fabric that's, that that's threading Gordo's um, narrative, the things that we're pulling from his story, like the fact that she's first, that she starts, and that we're pulling from her to interpret Gordo, would that be sort of a counter maybe to this just being about, you know, five dicks in a, in a asbestos infested? I, I just island? want to
3: add something, no, this isn't, this is sideways to what Noah was saying, it's parallel to what Noah said, it doesn't address your point, but it's, 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 it's there. There's also the issue of infidelity, but it's just five bros talking about, oh, you cheated, you, you took my, you took my, my girl from me, man. What the fuck? What if the woman liked the other guy better? I'm just saying, there's this whole issue of infidelity. But the woman, it's as if the guys own the women. That's really yeah. an yeah. unfair balance. We need women have no autonomy. They have no say. What you? This movie could have been improved. To if, if this movie was made in 2018, have one woman on the asbestos crew who just yeah keeps, keeps them straight. I, I can
0: feel the white knight comments coming on. We had the same issue with The Thing and all the male voices. Go, go ahead, Garrett.
1: No, I, I actually disagree with that. I think, I think uh, I mean, the film as sort of a male perspective is is part of it. I'm going to, I can't say it's deliberate per se, but I, I, I think I, I, you know, I, I want to be able to view the film as I want to be able to view just about anything through a feminist lens to see what that illuminates. But I don't know that this film would be improved if there was a woman on the uh, on the crew. But well, uh,
3: she'd be the token girl, which which would make it worse.
1: I mean, <laughs> Tokenism is always a problem too, but, but not even that. I mean, you 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 could have her fleshed out and robust and so forth. Um, but I I mean I think part of what the film is, you know, again the reality of what the film is trying to reflect is you know male psychology. You know i you're you're right that we don't see the the, the the wife's perspective and again that may or may not be deliberate, but I think you know the, the whole blue collar men working together, being bros together, being tough, going into the scary place and that is sort of a, a reality i think that they're trying to put their finger on in some ways
0: but, um, but it's not just male psychology garrett it's psychology i mean mary Hobbes is going through something similar in her story right so it's 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 pulling from the the hobbsian that's that's going to be used in a very different circle with you garrett as a philosopher i apologize it's pulling from the mary Hobbesian sort of story in order to give light to the gordo story i mean
1: yeah, but also notice the differences between Mary Hobbs' story and Gordon's story. Uh, Gordo snaps because of pressure from work um, and because of problems in his marriage. Mary Hobbs snaps because she was being abused.
0: Well, she dropped, yeah, she, yeah, that's right. You're right. And that she dropped a doll, which is, has, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: that was the trigger. That
0: was the Yeah, trigger. that was the trigger, yeah. Yeah, that's
2: a good Will point. just to say something feminist. And so we did. Yeah. Uh, the lack of female voices in the film is something feminist that we said. So yeah, I, where,
0: where's our female co-host? See, it, this is what happens yeah. every time you're not here, Shara, If as you're watching,
2: as long as we got, as long as we got the men's rights activist uh, dislikes on our channel uh, from this, fem- uh, this this sort of side side quest into feminism. I am uh, I think we've we've done our job.
3: I just want to say I just added to the spreadsheet in the company of men the Neil We film, which is again, it's a, it's a it's a social horror that is very misogynistic and was great for feminist discussion. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but it is a brutal movie about men abusing women, not abusing women in murder twice just psychological abuse.
0: Does it say something about you that it only took this discussion for you to instantly add that to our film list happily?
3: Well, no, it's just because I, I think about feminist films and I, I didn't know. know that this was part of our repertoire. I
0: know. I'm t- I'm, t- I'm totally messing with you, maybe. Uh, uh, okay, do you guys have anything else you want to add? Is there, are there any trails we didn't go down that you may want to explore in the next 20, 15, 20 minutes before we wrap up?
3: No, my notes sheet is cleared. I, I said everything I wanted to say. Yeah, mine was too. The last thing I
0: had was feminist perspective question mark question mark question mark, and that is why we have
3: Garrett. So I hope I perfect. didn't paint myself in a bad picture when I was sort of. No,
0: wrong. we know that you beat women. It's a fact. We all know this. It's okay.
2: No, Bye. not at all. <laughs> whenever,
0: whenever I hit my wife, I say you're going to get another Jonah, and I just I I call it like a verb, like yeah. So no, you're you're good. We all got you.
2: Okay, this is clip is going to be taken out of context. Yeah, by can sarcasm on the internet, okay? It will be taken out of context. It will... No. Uh, that's that's not a thing. Go ahead, Garrett. I was just... I need to make that I was
1: going to say yeah, the exact same thing, yeah, is that, that that clip could easily be taken out of context and, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're not so big that someone's looking to take us down a peg just yet by by decontextualizing us, but I will wrap up my feminist comments by saying that I, I, I don't think that that's a flaw. It is distinctively a film about men from male perspectives. Maybe it wouldn't resonate with women the same way. Again, it's a shame that we don't have a female voice here to, 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 to check and compare off of. Um, but you know, if, if you were to remake the film with, with a woman character, prominent front and center, um, it, you know, at, at a minimum, it would be a very different film, not necessarily a worse film, but it just it wouldn't be this film.
3: So have you heard of the Bechtel test? Yeah, Bechtel. Yeah. Oh Bechdel. yeah, yeah. Bechdel test. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll say it for what it is for the audience, for the sake of the audience. It's basically uh pick a movie where two women are talking, and if they are not talking about a man, then they or or sex, then they pass the Bechtel test. In this movie, there I don't believe there's a uh a male equivalent because men are generally better written characters than, than women. And so men will talk about sports or cars or the plot. But in this movie where it's just men talking about women and sex, I feel like there has to be a male equivalent for that. Well,
2: I mean, well, Bechtel, not- um, I'll just do a real quick on Bechtel test. And if you want to add something, Garrett, go ahead. Bechtel test is, is not, uh, one of the reasons one of the ways in which Bechdel test has been misapplied is it's supposed to be a evaluation of the medium as a whole so it's what percentage of films pass the Bechdel test not this film is bad because this individual film doesn't pass the Bechdel test and it's uh, two named female characters talking about something other than a man um, so I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily hit this film for not passing the Bechdel test. What I would hit uh, the industry for is having the majority of films not pass the Bechdel test. That said, I do want to bring up uh, one wonderful thing in the chat that uh, one Grey Chaos said, lol, let's just wait for the all-female reboot coming in 2019. Um, So uh, that will... Surely pass the Bechdel test once we get there. Uh, we just have to wait a year.
3: Yeah, that movie is going to be about how all of their husbands beat them. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus.
1: Um, yeah, no, Jim, you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, that's uh, almost, pre- and I would also add that there are um. Some you know staunchly feminist films that fail the Bechtel test, unfortunately i can't name of even off the top of my head because i can't remember but you know there 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 have been lists and and essays written on this that i'd seen um uh, so uh yeah, I think it's important to keep the bechdel test in in context as to whether or not you know there should be a male equivalence um i mean yeah i don't uh, uh, i don't know i can't really i can't really say I see the oh. need for that person se
2: yeah the the purpose of the Bechdel test was to prove how male-driven the industry is. So if there's a male equivalent of it, then that comes from the narrative of how female-driven the industry is, and that's simply not the case um, from from all empirical data. That said, I will say I've seen far more strong performances by actor actresses this year than I have by actors, but we are only in August of, uh, of this film year. Um, I can name three Best Actress nominees right off the top of my head right now. And uh, I can't do the same for Best Actor nominees, but we'll see, Oscar season is still still coming upon us.
0: All right, did you guys have anything else you wanna add before we wrap it up? If not, I'll, I'll kind of tidy up, give my summary, give my score, and then uh, we'll go down the list. You guys good?
1: Yes. I'll say one last sort of quick thing. Um, in keeping with my earlier comments about, you know, sort of psychology, uh, uh, I think that, you know, there there is a a genre of horror film here, you know, not just necessarily psychological horror or maybe horror having to do with asylums or institutions or something like that. Uh, I've seen a lot of them. um, And I think that this one really does sort of uh, hits everything that I like about them and only a few things that I dislike about them. So uh, um, you know, I, I, last week when talking about Bug, I mentioned Stonehurst Asylum uh, is sort of in passing. That's also a Brad Anderson film, uh, also set in a, an asylum. And it's a, it's a good movie, but it's not a great movie in the way I think Session 9 is.
3: What's your favorite David Caruso role?
1: Honestly, I don't know David Caruso from all that much. So it's going to be this. Um, but I, I think I've seen him in this, um, in CSI, Um
3: NYPD Blue.
1: NYPD Blue, yeah, I saw a couple episodes Jade, of that. Have couldn't...
3: you seen Jade with Chaz Palminteri? And...
1: I know of it. I have not seen it. Okay. So, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I can't say I have terribly high opinion of David Caruso as an actor, um, but I think he again, the fuck you line notwithstanding, I think he's he's solid in this.
3: I will say of all the fuck you, like there's a, there have been better fuck yous in cinema history. There should Tr- be a, tremors like, a tremors tremors, tremors comes to mind. A fuck you what's that no tremors comes to mind. There should be a fuck you montage of like the, the best fuck you. There should be an Oscar or Academy award category like best fuck you.
0: This would definitely be up there. My <laughs> god, this would definitely be up there. Um yeah,
3: so I I want
0: to I'll summarize my my spiel on this is that um, I dug this film the last couple of times I saw it. I liked it a lot more. I'm kind of, it was kind of fun to explore maybe why. I think I liked it a lot more. I think Jim prompted a really good question. That's kind of cool to think about my own personal shit. And maybe I do that with all my films did with it follows, did it with let the right one in just, I bring my shit to the table guys. And there's horror movies that I sort of interact with, with my own stuff, but that's kind of cool. It's why we do this podcast to a large extent. At least why that's why I do it. Um, So I, I did not like this film when I first saw it. I, but it's because I missed certain things. I think I, I, I didn't understand some of the ending. Um, I didn't care enough to look it up. To care, you know, I just I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it up. And um, I'm glad I I watched it again. This was uh, not only that, but one of the things I didn't say is this is one of those films like Pontypool that I could just put on at night and fall asleep very easily. And that's not a slight to the film. It's not like I don't mean that to be a kind of insult. It's just the setting is so continual. Um, it's isolated. It's it's almost like it's I don't know. When, whenever there's a movie where there's one continuous setting like this. I feel like I can, for the most part, zone out. And if I allow myself to, I, I do that with Pontypool sometimes. If it's raining or something, I can't fall asleep. I got insomnia. I throw on Pontypool. I feel like I could do this the same way with this film. And I do not mean that as a slight at all. Um, I think the more that you look at the dialogue and the interaction between the characters, I think that you start to see the value of this film. The acting is fantastic. I liked the music. Um, despite what some of us thought, I liked the ambient slash dark ambient sort of vibe that was in this felt like it was interspersed and enough to not be dominant, but also to not be, um, oblivious. I thought it was, it was there. It was there just enough to make me feel something, which was cool. Um, I think where the film had its flaw was it it was so slow. Maybe maybe my criticism was that it was such a slow burn that I really had to earn the ending. And the ending, what I what I earned in the ending didn't didn't give me the amount that I wanted. Um, but I like the fact that it it turned some of the tropes that I was thinking were going to happen on their head. Um, so kind of mixed feelings. Definitely like it more the second and third time around. If we were going to score this film out of ten, all around, um, I'd probably give this six point five. Seven around there. Um can't really go higher than that. I I rewatchability I'm still playing with. Feel like I could I could watch it again and without zoning out, and even get a lot out of it. So let's say let's say six and a half overall for my score.
3: Oh, you want me to go? Yeah, go for it. I did not like this movie. There were things I liked about it, like cinematography, but this discussion. Made me understand it and appreciate it and like it more, which brings the score, the final score up. And I'm being very generous here around it and say five, maybe no, five. Yeah, five. It's, it's a perfectly average film, but I definitely wouldn't watch it again. Or if I did, I would need some time and space to forget what I saw and then watch it on a good quality rip. You
0: need a Blu-ray. Let's just let's just. I'm going to send you the Blu-ray. Watch it. Your score will go up to a seven. We'll call it even.
3: Right, and then we'll do this podcast again.
2: (laughs) Okay. Um. I. uh, I, Um. So I think I've been fairly clear about uh, my complaints about the film uh, throughout the uh, the podcast, and so not to not to rehash them again, um I'll so you're just
0: scoring this at ten right that's what we ten no,
2: no, no. It's okay a, all right uh, two out of five, so that's four i guess um I think there's uh there i like i like the stories that we told tonight a lot more than I like the film so i I guess that'll be my my closer uh we've yeah, as i said i I've already sort of given my my dislikes and my negatives for the film, so I'll let. I'll let the guy who likes this film the most and the one who introduced me to this film and introduced all of us to this film, I'll let Garrett close.
1: So uh, there's a phrase that Jim uses often, which he did not use tonight, but I think he was, he was he was angling for it, which is that's that sounds like a great story. I'd love to see a movie about
2: that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I almost did it, like, three times tonight. And I was like, oh, that's too much of an asshole phrase. It's, I, I love it. I think it's a great
1: phrase. Uh, I've I taken to using it myself uh, uh, on occasion. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's that's fair, right? I mean, it's always a fair response, assuming it's sincere. Uh, but, yeah, I had a, a different response. Like you know, Again, I've also been unambiguous. I love this movie. I think that's... I. I have difficulty thinking of a horror movie that does a better job capturing both sort of abnormal psychology in a right way uh, and and the history of psychology, even though it's obviously not far from comprehensive, but just touching on a couple of things, but it's a couple of interesting and important things, uh, as well as horrifying things. I think that context, I think the reality of the story that inspired Gordo's character and the reality of Danvers State Mental Hospital as an actual place uh, are something that really ground this film for me. Um, I think the Danvers Hospital as a location is just absolutely horrifying. I think the fact that it's almost all real with very little set dressing is horrifying. I think the cinematography and the music work wonderfully. Some of you know, the, the, the little touches, the effects, the audio recordings, all of that, you know, make this a smash success for me. I will grant that there are some weaknesses, the fuck you obviously, um, the, 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 the somewhat superfluousness of, of Mike's character in the, set, in the third and arguably the second act as well. Uh, so it's certainly not a perfect movie on a 10 scale. I'd give it a nine, I guess. So, so on a five scale, that's a four and a half. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's not flawless, but it is damn good. And it gets a, a very high recommendation for me to anyone who likes horror movies, especially psychological horror movies.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so much better than, than most of the crap that comes out in the genre. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's scores above most of the stuff that comes out today. I, I, I would, I would agree with that. Um Okay. Well, cool guys. Um Thank you for, taking the time to do this podcast with us. We had a good amount of people in the chat tonight. It was great to see you guys. Uh, join us in two weeks from tonight. So that is September 2nd, Sunday, September 2nd, 6 p.m., same time. Uh, we will be doing Donnie Darko. And my goal, guys, is to get everyone who joins the podcast for Donnie Darko to be high as we do the analysis. Even if you've never had weed, you're just it doesn't matter if it's not legal in your state, we will get you high for this. Is that is the only way to watch Donnie Darko. So we'll be doing Donnie Darko two weeks from tonight. Um, check us out on social media. If you haven't seen our, our YouTube channel, um, a lot of the movies we referenced tonight, we've done um, discussions on. So Bug, Triangle, Event Horizon, Babadook, all of those things are on their channel. We're also on iTunes, SoundCloud, Compliance. Stitcher, all that. Compliance, Jonas Film Compliance for sure. So those are all there for you to check out. Um, check out our Facebook, Instagram. We're basically everywhere. We exist everywhere. We're like Simon. We're the Simon of social media. We're everywhere. Uh, so yeah, we'll see you guys in two weeks for Johnny Darko. Um, and if you don't join us, fuck you.